You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Research Saturday. I'm Dave Bittner, and this is our weekly conversation with researchers and analysts tracking down threats and vulnerabilities and solving some of the hard problems of protecting ourselves in a rapidly evolving cyberspace. Thanks for joining us. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. I think the first thing to say is this is joint work between myself uh, Sarah Jamie Lewis of Open Privacy Canada and Olivier Pereira of the Catholic University of Louvain. That's Dr. Vanessa Teague. She's an associate professor and chair of the Cybersecurity and Democracy Network at Melbourne School of Engineering, the University of Melbourne in Australia. The research we're discussing today is titled Trapdoor Commitments in the Swiss Post E-Voting Shuffle Proof. Olivier and I have worked together a lot before, but we didn't know Sarah. Sarah had been looking at it on the internet and had been tweeting a lot about the code. Olivier and I have worked together on cryptographic protocols for verifiable elections a lot. Uh, And we started looking at the protocol. And so we started collaborating with Sarah because she had a really good understanding of the code and we had a really good understanding of what those protocols should be doing. And so I guess you could say the team of researchers came at it for different reasons from different directions, but the collaboration worked out really well. So why were we drawn to the Swiss code in the first place? Uh, Because uh, somebody put it on the internet, (laughs) because it was there. (laughs) That's what researchers do, right? (laughs) Exactly. It's interesting to me because the 
the same software company supplies voting software for elections in the Australian state of New South Wales. And uh, New South Wales law says you're not allowed to share the source code or you go to jail for two years. Whereas Swiss law says roughly everybody has the right to inspect the source code of the system. And that's an important thing for democracy. So the Swiss system became in practice quite openly available and the code circulated quite openly on the internet. And I guess that gave us some clues about what might be happening in the New South Wales system. And in particular, the first thing we found, the authorities in New South Wales immediately said, oh, oh, that applies to us too, actually. (laughs) But don't worry, don't worry, we'll have it fixed in time for the election next week. Of course. Of course. Interesting. Interesting. And then the next thing we found, they insisted it didn't apply to them. But of course, since the source code is completely secret, it's not really possible for anybody outside the Electoral Commission or the software vendor to assess that. So take me through what we're talking about here with this Swiss e-voting software. Can you just sort of, uh, for folks who who aren't as uh, knowledgeable about all of the encryption schemes and, and all of that stuff, how would you describe it? There has been in the scientific literature for a long, long time a notion called end-to-end verifiability. This can apply to an internet voting system or to a polling place voting system. And the idea is that you use cryptography to give people evidence that the election has been properly conducted. So there's typically two or three steps to that. The first step is there's some kind of proof given to the voter that the machine they're using to vote really did cast the vote that they asked for because, of course, it's going to cast an encrypted vote so they can't see it directly. So there's some fancy cryptography for proving to the voter that the machine they voted on really did cast the vote they wanted to. And then the second part of it is some kind of process for making sure that the votes really got to the place they were supposed to get to, unaltered. And then the third part of the process is proving a little bit like proving a paper count when everybody stands around and watches the paper being counted. There are cryptographic protocols for providing evidence that all of the encrypted votes that came in were properly shuffled and properly decrypted and put into the telly in exactly the form they arrived. And of course, that's quite tricky because you've got to be careful to prove that the right collection of votes went in without revealing how individual people voted. So this has been a thing in the academic literature for a long time, and there have been a number of university projects, you know, open source, publicly funded academic projects, implementing various protocols with these kinds of properties. There's also been effort by industry to sell products that claim to have these properties. Now, it's important to understand that this is sort of, this is inherently a transparency property. Right. It's not necessarily claiming that the system is hard to hack or hard to break in. It's showing you evidence of whether or not the votes have been changed. So it's weird that a lot of the industry tends to tilt towards secret source code. Now, it's not inherently impossible to provide genuine end-to-end verifiability with a secret system because you could provide a very, very detailed specification that let people write their own verifiers and so on. But, you know, really... I think anything that claims to be end-to-end verifiable but remains secret in its implementation is pretty suspect. 
Yeah, I mean, it strikes me also that if I were just counting paper ballots, I'd want to do that out in the open where people could see the process. If I said to you, hey, I'm going to count all these paper ballots, but we're going to go back in a locked room where no right. one can see what we're up to. Well, that's not going to uh, get get a lot of confidence in the, the folks uh, who are counting on this election. Right, exactly. And so the whole purpose of this intellectual movement was to say, look, we can count votes electronically out in the open. And yet now we have an industry that goes, oh, no, no, it's verifiable. Trust us, it's verifiable, but you don't get to see the source code. <laughs> so this is a little bit disappointing to those of us who have worked on the academic side of this for a long time. So the Swiss system is kind of interesting in being a little bit in between because – so the New South Wales system is totally secret and you go to jail if you expose the source code. The Swiss system was until now secret is my understanding but was made available under this public intrusion test that they had and not only that – and that, that was covered by a non-disclosure agreement which we didn't sign because at least some Swiss people – I assume, felt confident enough under their law that I mentioned earlier saying that everybody has the right to examine the system to share the code much more widely. So in practice, the code for the Swiss system was made very widely available to a very large number of people and we were able to look at it without having signed onto any restrictions about what we could say about it. All right. So you get to look at this code. What did you find? We found that none of the proofs of integrity were implemented properly, which is not surprising really considering that they hadn't really been made available for open review before and that nobody selling this kind of software really has an incentive to do it right. So we found a number of completely independent serious problems. The first thing we found was in the shuffle proof that is meant to prove that the people shuffling the votes before they get decrypted haven't either added or subtracted or changed any of the votes. So this is as fundamental as it gets, right? That this yeah. is the point that's analogous to the point where you've got a whole lot of paper votes in a big ballot box and you're shaking the ballot box up to protect privacy before you tip it out on the table and count them. So this process of shaking up the ballot box and electronically shuffling the encrypted votes, was supposed to come with a zero-knowledge proof that none of the uh, votes had been changed. Because obviously, if there's no proof that the votes haven't been changed, then there's the capacity for the authorities who are running that election or the software vendor who provided the software or the janitor who broke into the computer while nobody else was around to manipulate the votes. We looked at the proof and we found that it contained a trapdoor. And the reason that it contains a trapdoor is that it's based on a commitment scheme that uses some parameters, a lot like the, many of your listeners will remember the dual EC DRBG disaster, right, in which some parameters just appeared in this random number generator and nobody really knew where they came from. But if you know the discrete log of one parameter with respect to another parameter, you can manipulate the system. Now, before we, we go further, can you describe to us uh, what is a trap door? What's the function of that? Why is it in there? There's some parameters that show up at the beginning of the shuffle proof. And if you didn't generate those parameters, then you, you have to complete the shuffle proof honestly. And there's sort of, there's a nice proof that you cannot cheat as long as you didn't generate the parameters yourself. However, if you did generate the parameters, and in particular, if you know certain mathematical relationships among the parameters, then you can make it look like the shuffle proof is 
perfect and it passes the verification test, but in fact, you can manipulate the votes. So the trapdoor is to know the discrete logarithms of some of those input parameters with respect to some of the other input parameters. And you can't compute that if somebody just gives you those parameters. But if you get to generate the parameters yourself, then you know that, then you can generate them in a way that you know the trapdoor and therefore you can cheat on the proof. So th there's a legitimate reason for putting the trapdoor in there? No, there's no legitimate reason for putting the trapdoor in there. Why was there a trapdoor in there, in your estimation? This is the million dollar question. As usual, there's the obvious, there's two options, conspiracy right. and incompetence, right? Okay. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And, and, and we, know, we are... know the saying about that, yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Based on the quality of the rest of the code, I think the incompetence theory is highly plausible. Okay. But... Fair enough. <laughs> so, but of course, you know, if you were going to deliberately put in a trapdoor, you would put in a trapdoor that looked like it was entirely consistent with incompetence. Uh, nobody knows, really. Well, I certainly don't know. The trapdoor is clearly there. It's clearly exploitable if you are the authority or the software vendor. We don't really know why it's there. And they're not saying. Well, weirdly, actually. After I wrote a paragraph saying, look, we're in no way are we accusing them of putting this in deliberately. It's perfectly consistent with a naive implementation of a complicated protocol. We're not saying they did it deliberately and so on. They actually put out a press release saying, how dare they say this? It absolutely is not a naive interpretation of the protocol. Oh, my. So, I don't know. That's interesting. It's, uh, it's just silly, I think. If anything, <laughs> that reinforces the idea that they didn't really fully understand what they were doing. So the important point is you can't tell whether it's deliberately or accidentally inserted. It, does, it almost doesn't matter, right, because it still could be used deliberately by somebody who did figure out the possibilities, even if it wasn't inserted deliberately. So it's bad. And it also kind of begs the question of how it got through that many layers. It, it had had a great number of supposed layers of internal assessment at Swiss Post before it got put up for public analysis, and yet nobody seems to have noticed this absolutely fundamental weakness in the cryptographic implementation. And this was something that jumped out to you and your colleagues quite readily? Yes, yes. And, and in fact, after we went public with it, we discovered that two other people had pointed out the same problem. So it was, it was, oh. you know, it was pretty obvious to people who knew what they were doing. And yet it had evidently not been properly checked before. It really reinforces the idea that code like this should be totally open. There's an element of this that involves the sophistication of the random number generators. Is that correct? No, no. Sorry. The reason I mentioned the dual ECDIVG thing is that the trapdoor is very similar in nature to the dual ECDRBG trapdoor. So it hasn't got anything to do with random number generation. It's just got to do with these parameters that pop up out of the middle of nowhere. and if you know the discrete log of one parameter with respect to another, then you can do stuff that you're not supposed to be able to do. That's all. I see. I, I guess I was getting at a couple of the cheating examples that were in one of the articles you sent over, and it said that weak randomness generation would allow the attack to be performed without explicit collusion. So if you're going to cheat in this way, the authority who's going to cheat in this way needs to know the randomness that was used at the client's end, like the voter's end, to generate the encrypted vote in the first place. It's just part of the maths of how you kind of make it work. There's plenty of ways to do that. For one thing, the same software company writes the client code and the shuffling code. So it's absolutely not out of the question that one entity could find out both of those things. But in fact, even if it was somebody who had just managed to break into the internet server, this same company has had issues with randomness generation in the past, and in particular, 
uh, they have, there was a bug in the Norwegian internet voting system in which the a lot of the random generation at the voter end defaulted to zero. So a whole lot of oh votes my. showed up at the Norwegian Electoral Authority that had all been completely trivially encrypted with the zero randomness. They were all exactly the same. <laughs> right, so they, wow. imagine they're getting all these encrypted votes in, they sorted them, and when they sorted them, they got huge big chunks of thousands or of many, many votes that were all identical. So that's not good. When it comes to random number generation, in this day and age, is that something that is understandable that could be a weakness in a system like this, or are we past the point where that sort of thing should sneak in? Good question. I mean, there's a lot wrong with this system that shouldn't have snuck in. And I mean, this system has had a very intensive review. Weak randomness generation. Look, I mean, just about anything could go wrong with anything, really, couldn't it? I, I wouldn't necessarily say that we're past the point where any particular problem should ever arise. I guess what I'm getting at is that if, if someone's doing this sort of work, are there standard toolkits you can you know grab off the shelf to reliably generate random numbers? In a web browser? I don't know. I wouldn't yeah. necessarily want to say with great confidence that any particular thing is okay. It's not It's not an easy thing to do, right? No, I mean, true random number generation is, is complex. It's very yeah. difficult. Absolutely. Okay. Let me talk about the second thing we found. So the second thing we found was as part of the zero-knowledge proofs for decryption, part of what you have to do – so there's an authority who knows the private decryption key, and that authority is going to decrypt the votes. So there's a bunch of encrypted votes coming in and a bunch of decrypted votes going out that everybody can read. But obviously, there's got to be a proof that this authority really did properly decrypt the votes. Otherwise, they could just substitute whatever votes they like and say, oh, this vote for my favorite party is an encryption of this ciphertext that I received. So the system includes another zero-knowledge proof that is supposed to demonstrate the plain text vote really did come as a proper decryption of the encrypted vote. Right. Now, unfortunately, that proof was broken too. Now, bear in mind, there are now only, there are only two proofs that are part of the shuffling and decryption process, and we broke both of them. So the decryption proof is wrong because of a reason that my colleague Olivier Pereira had already written a paper about. And it's kind of a complicated technical thing, but the short summary is that it's possible to run some parts of the proof backwards. And to start off with the answer you're looking for, run the proof backwards, make up or run some of the proof backwards, make up some of the inputs after you've generated the rest of the proof, and therefore make up inputs that are not truthful. Hmm. And then you end up with a proper proof that you've properly decrypted something when, in fact, you haven't done the proper decryption at all. Now, in this case, the only way we could actually demonstrate making it work was decrypting to a nonsense vote. And we couldn't figure out how to make a decryption that produced another valid vote, although we're not sure that it can't be done. We just couldn't quite see how it could be done. So at this point, they were sort of saying, oh, well, look, our verification mechanism doesn't seem to be sound. We're not very happy about that, but it's okay because we've never run that part of the system in any real elections. That was proposed for um, upcoming elections. I think it was May. However, it turns out <laughs> there's another part of the system that uses essentially the same proof. And that part of the system had been used. So now remember back to the list of things that we were talking about had to be proven. When right. the person casts their vote in the Swiss 
internet voting system. They send an encrypted vote and they also send some – the web browser also sends some other cryptographic stuff, which allows the authorities to produce – a, some special codes that go back to the voter. So the voter can check whether their web browser sent the right vote. You get a paper code sheet in the mail which says, you know, if you vote green, expect the following code back. If you vote red, expect the following code back and so forth. So, so you a bit cast, of a receipt. Yeah, exactly. It's a lot like a receipt. So you cast your yeah. vote, you wait for your codes to come back. If you get back the code for the candidate you expected to vote for, then that's some evidence that your the machine you were using to vote on sent the vote that you wanted, right? Mm -hmm. So that's all good, except that the flaw that we found in the proof applies to this section as well. So again, mm. we were able to show that it was possible for the voting client to send a nonsense vote in and yet still manage to derive the correct return codes. So the voter was happy, even though, in fact, nonsense had been sent in instead of the vote that they wanted. So, at that point, that became a much more serious issue because that part of the system had already been in use in Switzerland. And so, that potentially affects elections that have already happened. Now, again, we weren't able to show that it was possible to send in a valid different vote, although we're not sure that it's not. We just couldn't quite figure out how to do it. All we were able to show that it was that it was possible to send in a nonsense vote and get the right return codes back. And the Swiss authorities have now said, well, we've never received any nonsense votes in our elections. So we're sure that this attack hasn't happened. So we're not hmm. too worried. Now, I don't, obviously, I don't know how many independent Swiss citizens checked that themselves, but it's quite plausible that they never have received any such votes and that they would have been suspicious if they had mm -hmm. done so. It's interesting to me, even if that hasn't happened, the news about this can cause an erosion of trust in the system, which is certainly here in the United States, that's something we've been dealing with since our 2016 elections. Absolutely. Well, in this case, an erosion of trust in the system is thoroughly justified. And in your case, too, if you don't mind my saying so. So what happens next? You publish your research. What sort of feedback do you get? Are, are the folks who make these systems, have they been making changes? Are they, uh, are they collaborating with you? What's the state of things now? The people who made the system put out a reasonably civilized press release, actually. There's two different uses of the same system, right, which very much complicates the thing. So first of all, the Swiss Post system, which is the system that was openly up for review, the Swiss authorities have made an announcement saying that they're not going to offer up the system for use in the next round of Swiss elections, that they're going to take some time to reassess the situation. So that's what's happening in Switzerland. In New South Wales, we know that they were using something very similar to the same system because they admitted that they were affected by the first problem that we found. They denied that they were affected by the second problem that we found, which is somewhat implausible since it affects exactly the same part of the code. Not exactly the same part of the code, certainly the same segment of the process. But because they've never made their source code openly available 
for any kind of expert examination, it's impossible to say. The New South Wales election ran the Saturday before last, and they're still counting the votes. We don't know whether the votes that came over the internet are going to be substantially different from the votes that came over paper. We don't know whether there are going to be any seats in the parliament that are very close and therefore possibly dependent on the internet voting system. So we don't really know what's going to happen in New South Wales. It's possible that nothing will happen because nobody cares, but it's also possible that somebody will care and will raise questions about the integrity of the electronic voting process. So in terms of these electronic voting systems being in our future, what do you think is a good way for us to to keep these things out in the open and to head towards a state where we have confidence that the systems don't have these sorts of problems? Uh, vote on paper, I would say. Hmm. Vote on paper. Uh, if you really can't vote on paper, then I don't think there should be any tolerance at all for closed source electoral systems. Every time we look at something, we find something seriously wrong. This isn't the first time we've looked at an internet voting system, and it certainly isn't the first time that scientists have looked at an internet voting system. Every time we look at something, we find something seriously bad. And I think because the challenge of voting security is really pretty much unique in that there's a tremendous concentration of power in one place. The attacker model is incredibly strong and the opportunity for one person to really alter the path of a whole country is pretty much unparalleled in any other scenario. So I think these systems should be treated with the greatest possible scrutiny. I don't think there's any excuse for deploying anything that hasn't had very broad, very open, very extensive public review. I'd be surprised if any system really does pass <laughs> after that very broad, very open, extensive public review. If it does, okay. But I suspect that at the moment it won't. I just don't think we are able to build systems. If you really think about the likelihood that people are going to verify properly, the likelihood that there are no serious bugs in the code, and the importance of the task, I think we should be sticking to paper for now. Our thanks to Dr. Vanessa Teague from the University of Melbourne for joining us. The research is titled Trapdoor Commitments in the Swiss Post E-Voting Shuffle Proof. We'll have a link in the show notes. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire.
The CyberWire Research Saturday is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.